Ladies and gentlemen, can you believe it? Season four of Chewing the Gristle, the greatest podcast that ever was. Well, that might be bold, but I like it. What is Chewing the Gristle? Well, doggone it, we've got a whole bunch of internationally renowned musical guests, mostly guitar players, I believe. <laughs> Not that other people who play other instruments aren't musicians as well, but we're a little biased towards the six-stringed variety around here. Brought to you by our friends at Wildwood Guitars of Louisville, Colorado, where, of course, I've been doing videos for over 10 years. They have so many guitars, it'll tempt your mind, body, and soul. You better be careful. And our friends at Fishman Transducers, bringing you state-of-the-art accoutrements for amplifying your acoustic instruments to sound the best they possibly can. Doggone it. And let's face it, their fluence guitar pickups, especially those with the Gristletone moniker, are ass kicking. Let's get to it. Season four, Chewing the Gristle, we ride. Ladies and gentlemen, this week on Chewing the Gristle, we have the mighty Devin Ullman, guitarist, singer extraordinaire. You've seen him with Devin Ullman Project, the Ullman Betts Band, and of course, the Ullman Family Revival. Ladies and gentlemen, this week on Chewing the Gristle, we are indeed going to chew the gristle with the mighty Devin Ullman. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, once again, here we are around the gristle fire for a little chewing the gristle. We got the mighty Devin Alden in the house and he's down in St. Louis. You are in the midst of rehearsing for the tour coming up. How's it going? What's happening? Oh, man. Thanks for having me there, Mr. GK. I well, pleasure. It. I used to play a GK amp. Oh, indeed. See, it's all symbiosis. <laughs> um man it's going great i've i've been off for six weeks which has been illuminating and uh and lovely that's that's quite a long time for our biz as you well know six weeks is a a, a minor eternity so lots of autumnal living loving uh farmers markets pumpkin patches nephews lots of cooking man i mean a lot of cooking i got all my chops back Excellent. And uh, yes, uh, we had some cats touch down here at Lambert International Airport. Uh, one, Mr. Alex Orbison, son of Roy, legend Roy Orbison, my, one of my best friends in the world. Uh, Mr. John, John Ginty, keyboardist extraordinaire. You'll know him from the Robert Randolph Band, the Wu-Tang Clan. Um, Citizen Cope, the Allman Betts Band. Um, he's got a resume a mile long and so they they came into town we put the core band in a room and started sussing out the classics the almond classics for the the big tour that has kind of just evolved over the years to become this this hangout this this kind of big you know biggest jam of the year we call it because there's really nothing else like it out there um and i a little birdie told me you're on some dates with us. Yes, I cannot wait. I've been having so fun, so much fun going over some of the tunes that we discussed. Yes. And oh my god, it's it's uh it's uh it's a dream come true. You know, I was a huge I always have been a huge Almond Brothers fan. And um uh yeah, those tunes have just you know what's interesting though when you start dissecting them, it's like you know, I would always whenever I would jam those tunes with various different people. 
I'd always play like the same part and I never worried about the other parts. But when you start dissecting them, it's, it's, uh, there's some math involved. <laughs> yeah. It's really wild, man. You know, I, I did a really good listening session today at the gym too. And, um, obviously I've, I heard these songs hundreds of times, you know, when, when, in my formative years on, on tour with dad in my teenage years, you know, and, and a lot of osmosis, you know, coming into the perif, like invading. Um, so I, I, I think it's kind of strange because I, I think that given my circumstance, I've, I've tended to take them for granted to a degree of like, oh, well, I know all of those haunting melodies by heart. Sure. But when when you take the deep dive and you do your due diligence as as every, you know, musician should, you really realize, wow, you know, um, a few things about the Allman Brothers, um, that they were they were way ahead of their time. Um, and and not they weren't reinventing the wheel, but they were merging genres that nobody had really done in that fashion and they were and they were just eons ahead of people in their playing they they just loved the playing and you're right there's there's some math in there when you get down to the uh the guitar minis as yes we like the guitar minis yes uh and speaking of guitar minis just this little, little sidebar uh after the rehearsal last night uh alex orbison his family runs with the Walshes uh, and the Eagles were in town. So Al got us uh, tickets to go see Joe Walsh and company. Yes. And uh, man, him and uh, who's the cat that's playing with him now, man, you know. Well, Vince Gill, obviously, but who's the other guy? Vince uh, is great. It, and, and I want to say, is his, uh, now I feel like an asshole. Is his name Seymour or something like some Scott I, I, or, I, I know he's great, but I don't know I don't know his name. But I know who you're talking well, about. Well, now that you know, now that I know people are going to be listening to us, and, and and there's people listening right now saying the name over and over, like yeah, screaming it. They're so screaming it at us. Um, I'm just going to have to go to my friend, the inner Google. Yes, uh, and and say it now so that we know. And I'd like to know his name, Stuart. Smith, I'm an idiot. There we go. Perfect. Smith. Man, oh man. I mean, Joe Walsh is a national treasure, as we know, but Stuart Smith had every lick, and I mean the precision and the tone. And these cats, like I'm kind of I'm kind of known for going out with a lot of guitars because you know I'm not a I'm not a super riff meister or anything like that. I'm a I'm a play the cut kind of kind of cat, but when I was in Almond Betts band, I'm playing in a band with two humbucker guitarists. So I had to kind of switch up my paintbrushes or, or I'm just going to get in their way or just get swallowed. Um, so I, I take a lot of guitars out with me, but these cats, they had a different guitar, all of them for every like day. Every song. song. <laughs> I mean, every song, man. And, and dude, dude, Jill Walsh had a Charvel, a San Dimas at one point, <laughs> and it sounded sick. And he played this really sweet Rickenbacker slide. And then my man uh, Stuart Stuart Smith was was getting down with a lot of music mans. Yeah, and they were sounding really cool. Some with P ninety, some without. But um, it was a really great show, man. That sounds sounds. And like I thought of you fun. because it was just a a, a guitar. Army, a guitar. It's Armageddon. A guitar me. 
Um, it, it was fantastic, man. It was it was just really great. But I mean, back to the Almond Family revival. You know, I I, I fell in love with your uh with with your obviously your playing speaks for itself but but your passion um you're a good family man you're a good person greg k i do what i can and (laughs) you know uh your gift of gab and your ability to keep things moving along you know when you're when you're doing the chat um i think it was during covid man where i pulled up a lot of your your uh youtubes because i was I was shopping for way too many guitars. <laughs> and every time I'd go, be like, well, what does this 64 SG reissue sound like? Oh, there's Greg. Oh, there's Greg. Oh, Greg plays that. And then I just started looking for you because I, I trusted your breakdowns. Awesome. And, uh, and then I was like, shit, man, I got I to gotta find this cat. <laughs> there you have well, it. Well, I'm glad you did. You know, I'm, I'm curious as to, you know, growing up, you know, having the dad that you had, I mean, was there at some point where you're like, yeah, that's, that's dad's music. I want nothing to do with that. Or was, was there a rebellion stage where you're like, yeah, I'm going to do my own thing. This is, that's his thing. Or what, at what point were you like, yeah, actually this stuff's pretty cool. Right. Uh, no, it's a great question. I think that, um, I think that everybody's twenties are the, the rebellion or the, the roadmap years where you're trying to just kind of find your way as an adult, you know, it's like that. It's, I've always said that because my son's in his 20s. I always tell him, I'm like, look, the 20s are your bridge from childhood to adulthood. Like, you're going to mess up, man. You're going you're gonna to have, like, you know, um, you know, just to points in your life where you just have an identity crisis. You're trying to find your thing, trying to find your groove, trying, you know, and that's what the whole decade's about. So embrace it, you know, and, and for me, yeah, I went, you know, grunge was huge when I was at an impressionable teenage, you know, years. And like, so we wanted to smoke the biggest joints. We wanted to write the biggest, gnarliest riffs. And then it became stoner rock and slower and really, kind, you know. Um, and what was funny, though, was, was a little bit after, well, actually during that. We we had fallen in love, me and the guitar player especially, and in, in, in my my twenties band. It was called the Dark Horses. We were based in St. Louis. We played some horde tours. We opened for Blues Traveler. We we had little moments in the so we almost got signed by Electra Records. We were we we're kids. Um but what was funny was during that we fell in love with BB King and Muddy Waters and Howlin' Wolf and all this shit. And we started a side band that was a uh a blues band and we wore suits and and we played kind of like high octane blues and shit. So even back then I kind of knew that the family stuff is, is what, what really actually came natural. And I I think right after my twenties, um, I put my debut record out and I had like a thing go top five in Spain. And it was like the most effortless thing I ever did. Like I didn't even have to try and something clicked and was like, dude, like, you come from the almond family. Like if, if you remind a couple folks of your dad or whatever, that's because the guy down the street reminds people of his dad. Like, right, right, right. It, so it, it took a while to get out of my head there. Um, so yeah, I, I think there was, there was a, an instance to kind of turn the other way. And then it was like coming on back home. And, and I can remember making fun of pops like, Oh, you guys are classic rock. And, and I can remember him being like early forties, in the second wave of the Allman Brothers in in the nineties, going like, 
classic rock, motherfucker. Like, I'll show you classic rock. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and they'd go out there and do like, you know, like sailing across the Devil's Sea. I was like, no, oh, that is, that's pretty tough. <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah absolutely. <laughs> There's some good stuff in there for sure. Absolutely. So when what so was the Honey Tribe was that like your your first foray into your own thing or was that after your initial record as as yourself? Yeah, no, Honey Honey Tribe was kind of like my uh that was my first dive in, you know. I I just was like screw it, I'm going to go out, I'm going to go on tour. I don't care if there's 50 people and there were. Sure, I understand. Uh, <laughs> and I scraped together just enough t-shirt money to go in and make a record. And uh, I was it was halfway through making the record, and somebody called up, said, "Hey, man, I just started this label in Atlanta. We just got a we're a subsidiary now of Warner Brothers, and I want to sign you." And I'm like, "How old are you?" He's like, "26." I'm like, I'm "Like, dude, I'm 33. What do you want to sign me for?" You know, I, I was kind of late to the game, and uh, he goes, "Man, you know," and he just blah 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 blah. And I said, well, why don't you come down here to Memphis where I'm cutting this record and at least hear what you think you want to sign. <laughs> right, know? right, right. He hadn't even heard the record. And uh, and that was it. He he signed it and and you know, we went on tour and we and we played to nobody. We played to nobody. We I remember playing Wan E Festival down in Florida. I remember I remember going on at noon, my pay was four hundred bucks and they wouldn't even give me hotel rooms. Slept in my van behind the stage overnight. I can tell you by fact that it cost $22 in gas to run the AC through the night for a night's sleep. <laughs> and, uh, and then we worked up through our ranks and kind of did stuff. And then, you know, I think after a few years, there was an offer to, uh, to write some songs with Cyril Neville from the Neville Brothers. Mm. And that was like, a next level thing for me because I, I really admired the Neville brothers and, um, and that really, uh, you know, I was like, well, you can't, you can't force chemistry. So let's just see if Cyril and I could write some tunes, you know, and we wrote a shit ton of tunes and Mike Zito was in that band. Um, and Mike and I wrote some tunes and Mike and I go back to, we used to work at the same guitar center. Aha. Uh, he's a, I mean, he's a St. Like, Louis guy, right? That's another podcast, uh, <laughs> you know? Uh, yeah, St. Louis Cat, and um, yeah, we worked at the same guitar center. So anyway, then that band was born. So it's just like, it just seems like through, if I look pat back at my last 20 years of my career, like every three years, I just I just want to switch it up. I want I want there to be a different band name and a different direction and a different MO and a different like mission statement and... I just always want to clear the landscape for something kind of fresh and new. Interesting. I, I was thinking the other day when I was I was watching uh, some videos of the uh, the last tour that you guys did, and and I enjoyed uh, I enjoyed your tone and your vibrato and your way of phrasing in the solos. And and what's curious, which is so tricky about the whole kind of almond vibe of, of of improvising and this is something that warren haynes does very well and of course you know Derek and so on and so forth but of the original you know obviously Dwayne and dickie and then later on danny toller it was this ability to have the blues phrasing 
tone and attitude forefront with just enough jazz to get in trouble. You know what I mean? But without, without it, without it overshadowing anything, but really the idea of, you know, the, the vibrato and the tone is like key. And, um, and you guys definitely have that mindset as well. And I'm wondering, was that something that you just instinctively understood about that music or was there a family discussion of a sort of, of, of that kind of an attitude? That's a good, that's a good question. Um, you know, I, I, I started guitar at 13, um, just to, just to really have a vehicle to write songs. I wanted to, to be a good songwriter. Um, and then I really fell in love with a particular era of the stones right when that, that band I was in, in the twenties, like really kind of got serious and got pretty good. And, um, I really became, um, very much in love with the art form of rhythm guitar Mm -hmm. and how you lay in the cut and, 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 and I, I, I say this as a buildup. I was scared to death of, of lead guitar. I mean, my uncle was known as one of the best that ever played the gig, you know, one of the best that ever walked the rock, right? Right. And so I really stayed away. Anything past like the 12th fret was the moon to me. Like, I was like, I, you know, I'm not touching that shit. And um, so I don't know, man. You know, I, I think I was maybe in my early 30s when I took my first kind of like solo like I started to kind of mess around with it on home demos and then I tried one live and it kind of, it kind of worked okay. Right. And, and then, you know, um, maybe another one. And then in honey tribe, the guitar player quit. He didn't, he didn't want to be on a road. He didn't want to be a road dog. And at that point in the night of 14 songs, maybe I played lead on one or two and I, I had like a two month break on touring and I was like, well, I'm just going to bone up and see if I can just do it without replacing him. And if I can't do it, you know, I'll hire somebody. And if I get through it, like if I have a breakthrough or something like, you know, really just to get the confidence. So, and it, it went okay. You know, it went okay, but I still like, I still fancy myself a beginner because I started playing lead guitar truthfully at, at 34 you know, and so many of my my buddies in in the game, you know, started at nine, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, or or twelve or whatever. But I think really, again, that osmosis of being on tour with the Allman Brothers and like listening to, um, you know, having having those melodies kind of haunt me, um, really did help. I mean, it really kind of gave me a, a dictionary of of what's there. Now, as far as like having that ability for you know like a jazzy leaning you know i I think when you when you play songs like dreams and stuff like you're you're kind of gonna you're just gonna go there and you know a lot of what you tap when you go to tap the well is what you've put into the well right so i listen i listen to a shit i'm a like i said i like to cook i listen to a ton of coltrane man and i listen to a ton of miles and you know, I think I think if you can have a little, you know, eighty percent blues and 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 ten percent 
you know, kind of rock and and ten percent jazz. There's there's something in there. There's there's gold in in them thar hills. Yes, there's um, gold. <laughs> you know, and then I really love Santana too, and I love Arabic scales. So there's yeah, yeah. Some of that can kind of find its way into my stuff. Um, and certainly, dreams is a really good palette to let anything anything Latin, anything Arabic, anything jazz. Um. And I'm not like a real super scale geek or anything. Like I don't sit down and really run all that stuff. But I, I listen to African music. I've I've been to Africa like five times. I'm I'm going back in January. Um, I really I love that stuff. But I'm I'm glad you dug it, man. Because you know you're you're a really truly world class player. And I you know I I recycle the same three licks over and over. Um, and so that's, that's really nice of you to say, and it means a lot to me. I, I do think every guitar player has his own touch, no matter how deep his trick bag is. Oh, absolutely. That, that touches everything. Even if you only had one lick, like if you got the touch, you got the God dang touch. You know? That's it. That is it. Now you were saying yesterday we were shooting the breeze and you said that old Danny Toller sat down with you a couple times. I'm, I'm curious as to, do you remember anything about what he said to you or any of that kind of stuff? Well, I mean, he was, God, man, you know, I, I really wish that he had been on some really big, big breakout records, you know, um, because it seems like the, the, the few that he were, he was on weren't, you know, weren't necessarily the biggest. Um, he was so melodic. Oh, man, he was so great. I thought, you know, I tell you what, one of my favorite records of all time to this day uh, is just before the bullets fly. That whole record is awesome. And sure, yeah, you got some of the the '80s production a little bit, for, but the tunes and his playing and your old man singing, fucking fantastic. Um, he showed me some stuff. To be quite honest, GK, I I was a young pup, man. I was 16, and I think I was more in awe of him than really taking in any of the, the the true lessons and the true licks. I got to just be honest. Now, did some of them hit me later in life? Yes. Um, he, he was a master phraser, as you know, and he was a master uh, melotician. Is that, a, is that a word? It is now. Melotician. Mel- <laughs> yeah. Come on, man. We, we, we write in a book here. Woo! Uh, <laughs> I, I think he was such a master uh, at, at melody. I mean, just uncanny. And and I loved, um, what was the tune where he where he where he tagged the Layla leg? Can't keep running. Can't keep running. Which was a song written by. Uh, was that a Don Johnson tune? I can't remember. Uh, eh. Because I know he wrote a few of them with him, but but who wrote that song? I know you can't keep running. I know that was a uh, Michael Bolton, bro. Oh, <laughs> Michael Bolton! I did not know that. And you I learn the, something new every dog on day. The synth pad on that. I mean, they had they had their eighties on, man. Um, they did indeed. You know, I you know, it's funny that you um, gravitate towards that Bullets Fly record. You know, um, that was the the album that had come out, and that was the tour that I first met him on. 
Aha. So like I had I didn't have any contact with dad. And I finally was like, screw it. And I wrote him a letter and I was just like, hey, I'm your son. I mean, this letter, <laughs> I wish we still had it. God, it was like four sentences and it was it was pretty, you know, corny. I mean, I was like 15. It's like, hey, I'm your son. I like Ozzy. I play guitar. Like, here's my phone number. And like, son of a bitch, if he didn't call, like, you know, four days later when the, when he got the damn thing. And he, and he did. He called and he was like, well, you know, I think it's time, you know, we hung out. And I was like, shit, all right. And uh, it turned out it was just before the Bullets Fly tour. I love that album. And I think, I think I have to say... Now that we're far enough away from the old eight zeros, I like the production of that of that one in particular. Yeah, the the, the one before that, I'm no angel was was more eightyfied. I think. Yeah, it was it was a little schlockier for sure. But you know, just before the bullets fly, it had it had some synth pads. It had some, you know, it had some some drums that were kind of questionable. But like, if if you so if you think about those tunes. And you think about like some stellar vintagey kind of recording, it would kind of lose some of the character, I think. Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, it still had the B3, it still had the Les Paul of Doom. Defended. Yeah. Yeah. So that and, was, and great and great play and and really great uh I wonder who produced that son of a bitch. I think it wow, I, no, I can't remember. It was the same guy that uh produced the the other one, wasn't it? It was the guy who did um uh 38 special. What was that guy's name? Hmm. It wasn't Bud Snyder, was it? Uh, no, it was. Oh, he was not. engineer. He was engineer. It'll come to me. Um, but yeah, that's that's a really cool record, man. And um, you know, I'm No Angel was a real. It was a hit for Dad. It was a gold album, and it was his big comeback record. And then, for those that don't know out there, just before the bullets fly was the follow up, and it, it, you know, it. I don't think it had an I'm No Angel on it because that was such a universal like just you know people love that song um but the label found out the bros were going to reunite right record ship so they didn't push it they're like screw that we're gonna we're gonna wait for the allman brothers you know exactly and right around that same time is when dickie came out with that pattern disruptive which was also an awesome record awesome awesome i have it on vinyl killer man and that's got warren haynes on it man yeah we used to do one of those tunes um uh, the main tune off that, the shuffle tune, ding, get, 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 savagery. It's Rodney Mills was the producer. Rodney, Rodney Mills. Yeah. Yes, indeed. But yes. So St. Louis was kind of, um, you know, back in the day, I mean, I think Dwayne's wife was from there as well. What was, and they lived there for a while, didn't they? The bros at some point in like an hourglass days. Yeah, yeah. I think as the uh, as the legend will have it, they they held court for about ten months in St. Louis, um, and then they got some scrappy little crappy little uh, record deal out in L.A. And you know, um, the label was trying to tell them what kind of songs to do and whatnot, and and uh, you know that didn't last long. And Dwayne gave them the bird and hightailed it out of there and, and ended up like ended up going back and starting the what became the Allman Brothers band. So St. Louis is kind of a wild thing. You know, I grew up South Texas. Um I I I grew up in Corpus Christi, Texas, where it was all about football and heavy metal. 
That was <laughs> it. That was it, you know? And like, so interesting slant for you that, uh, that I'll tell you because you're my bro. You know, uh, mom and dad, fast and furious, young kids, his first wife, they were like 22. And, uh, and Dwayne passed away on the motorcycle. And uh, it, it pretty much ended the marriage. Uh, so she went home to Corpus Christi to have me. And I grew up just kind of away from the, the hurricane, you know, away from the, the, the limelight and away from the backstage and all the craziness, which is by design. She didn't want me around that stuff. Um, but organically, naturally, I, I became completely obsessed with music. And the first things were her Beatles records that I would take and take back to my room to spend overtime. Um, I got my own like small record player. I was like, dude, I was five years old. I was like listening to the radio every time we got in the car. I couldn't wait to turn on that radio. We had a great rock station. And I'd quiz her, you know, who is that? She'd be like, oh, that's, uh, that's Jim Croce. Oh, that's Aerosmith. That's, you know, that's Frank Zappa. Like, I'm telling you, it was a great radio station. Uh, and I go, oh, who's that? And she went, that's your dad. <laughs> and that was like the first time that it really clicked like oh shit you know like my dad's one of these people that are just like superhero magicians to me you know it's really a trip i would imagine that would be a trip it really was <laughs> it was really a trip and then and then dad married Cher, and then you know my dad's like everywhere i turned um so through the years you know uh, my 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 love for music just got like crazier and crazier and crazier. I ended up in St. Louis because my mama remarried a pilot, and he got a gig flying for TWA, and they were oh based, shit, they I were remember that. So like you know, if it would have been Delta, we'd be you know I'd be probably talking to you from Atlanta, Atlanta or Minneapolis at the time. Or yeah, or, yeah I was totally mad and like you know. Um, Stayed in St. Louis a little bit, went on tour with dad, moved in with dad in Nashville for a bit, went to Memphis, kind of bounced around, was going to uh, move to L.A. and start my career and start a band. And um, I met my son's mama and I was like, well, I want to see where that goes. And then we got married and this is eons ago and had my son. And then, you know, it was like, wow, I'm, I'm based here. You know, it's it's the center of the country. You always got to come back to the middle when you tour. It's a great great place to be a dad, and um, not dissimilar to Milwaukee, if I may. Yeah, be and I and I love Milwaukee. Milwaukee has a very kind of similar vibe for sure. Beer town, baseball town. Uh, brewers always give us a tough run for sure. Um. But yeah, so St. Louis is kind of wild. You know, I, I meet so many people in the music industry and they're like, oh, you know, you live in L.A. And I go, no, I live, I live in St. Louis. And they're like, what? Uh, but there's also a really, really rich music history here, man. I mean, you got oh, Miles, no doubt. Right. Miles Davis and Ike and Tina Turner and Albert King. And, um, the list is pretty long. So uh, all my brothers here. I mean, I've even had cats come out to the shows and be like, hey. You know, and and show me photos from when they were playing here when they were like nineteen. So it's uh, it's a trip. 
So did I, I, I'm curious as to when you were going forth in music, uh, was your dad supportive or was he like, don't do it? Or was he, you know what I mean? Cause you know, yeah. some, some musicians are so salty regardless of their level of success of just like, Oh my God, whatever you do run. <laughs> was yeah. he supportive? Did he, did he help um, you out? I mean, what was it like? I think, you know, I think that at the end of the day, he just wanted all of us kids to just be happy no matter what we were doing, you know? And, um, I think after after seeing me at it for a number of years, he realized that I was going to make music regardless of becoming, you know, quote unquote, successful. Like, this is just what I love to do. And I'll do it, you know, in, in a tiny club to 20 people or I'll do it in a theater to 2000 or I'll do it at a festival to 20,000. doesn't matter. Like... I, and I kind of hit that point too, when I had some, some tough times in the beginning, I was like, man, you know, am I, am I doing this just to be successful or like, like what's, and I had to really kind of gut, gut check myself. And, and when I did, that's actually when things started to kind of progress, you know, when I just stopped kind of just stopped caring, like just, just play the stuff and, uh, and have fun and connect with people that are like-minded, um, that are playing because they love to play and um once he once he kind of saw me click through that he was like yeah man you you need to you you got to follow your passion this is your passion he's like and it you know he said it reminded him of him um he always joked with us like hey don't you guys just want to you know be an accountant or something where you can make a paycheck um, <laughs> like are you sure you want to get in this you know but he was kind of half joking uh he knew that i was you know i was i was all i was all in we interrupt this regularly scheduled gristle infested conversation to give a special shout out to our friends at fishman transducers makers of the greg cock signature fluence gristle tone pickup set can you dig that and our friends at Wildwood Guitars of Louisville, Colorado, bringing the heat in the shadow of the Rocky Mountains. Once the bite takes, it's, uh, I was like, I told my kids, you know, all my, uh, my girls are into theater. And, um, and of course, my son plays drums with me and has gone ever since. And my, my youngest is the only one that's, uh, he's going to school as a biochem major, although he does play saxophone and he's, he continues to play. Awesome. But, but I would say it's like, you, you know, you almost have to be like uh, so obsessed and, and like single minded as to border on crazy <laughs> in order to do this thing. And I would say, unless you have the the skin or the, the love of what you do has to so far overshadow the bullshit you're going to turn and get at every turn. That unless you have that thick skin for that and just that that one mindedness, don't even bother. And, and that's the truth. I mean, I can't. You know, I'm sure you were the same way. It's like you know, totally. you're coming up. People are like, don't do that. Or you'll never do this, and you'll never do that. And and you're like, oh yes, I'm going to stand clear because here I come. Yeah, yeah. No, I think I think you're you're right. And I think there's so many um, industries where you could kind of draw a parallel, like like someone that that may want to. Um, be a painter or someone that may want to open a restaurant, you know, there's a trillion people trying to open a restaurant and you know, how many really make their mark, how many 
get people talking about them? How many, you know, how many get people talking about them without having to go and like really kind of push themselves? You know, how many painters really get to become iconic without like really trying? Like somebody just sees their stuff and goes, oh my God. And then the word spreads, you know, it's, it's a funny dynamic out there. Um, it's kind of like the best time ever to be an artist and the worst, like, like concurrently, like it's kind of a, a strange time, but I agree. You know, I think that, um, if you do things for the right reason and, you know, there's, there's that bit of that healthy obsession, um, at the end of the day, I think that what we do, um, is that we, we serve up medicine, except it, it doesn't go on the tongue. It goes on the ears. Right. And it goes into the hearts. And, and, and I think we make people feel good. And I think that that's, um, I think it's God's work. I think it's noble. I think it's, um, it's something that has to be done. And, and I don't just talk about you and me playing guitars and getting silly and, you know, chatting on podcasts. I'm, I, I, I talk about all the artists, like, when I go to MoMA in New York City, those painters are giving me a break from the bullshit of the world. When I watch a great film, you know, that director and that cast are giving me a two-hour vacation from a hectic life. And, you know, I've always said art is life because if I imagine a world with, with no music, no film, no no, no poetry, no paintings. <laughs> no, I could go on ad infinitum, like no, no, no operas, no this, no that. No. Um, that's a gray, lifeless world that I, I won't want to be around in, you know? Exactly. You know, it is interesting. <laughs> you touched on a few things that are, that I always like to kind of jar a little bit around uh, or uh, jaw a little bit about, I should say, is the idea of, the whole inner Google thing, you know, the whole YouTube and digital downloading and all this other kind of stuff, learning music in, in this regard and just the accessibility to it. And, it, and, and I'm of the mind that it's, it's really kind of the golden age for learning because, I mean, I'm, you know, I'm sure you remember like, you know, reading about a specific player, maybe in Guitar Player magazine, and they would go, well, I was really in, you know, influenced by this person, this person, this person. And you had never heard of those people. Like, well, where do I find records of these guys? You know, when you go into the record shop and you're the, hey, uh, do you have a you know Jimmy Bryant record? And hey, do you have any, uh, uh, you know, uh, Robert Johnson this or whatever? You know, and sometimes they would have it, but most of the time they wouldn't, unless you were really anal and got the little Dude, you know, Right. And now you've got like, not only can you go online and find every person that anyone ever mentioned, and they'll either be actual footage of the person playing, uh, if not somebody showing you how to play the stuff, or at least the, the audio has been uploaded. It's like you have everything. It's like I, I said, there's no, there's actually no reason to suck at this particular point in time. Yeah, because it's all right there. But I mean, you still got to put the time in. But but conversely, what I find is, is that you know, like my son, who's, uh, who's 19, you know, he likes music and, um, he's not obsessed with it, but he, he, he likes music. He'll listen to it and so on and so forth. The one day I was, I was talking to him. I was like, so what kind of music do your friend, are your friends into? He's like, well, I have no idea. I was like, what do you, what, what do you mean you have no idea? So when I was, 
when I was younger, it's like the whole reason we found friends was because of what kind of music they listened to. And to me, it was like, you could tell a lot of person about what kind of music they listen to. And he's like, yeah, that's totally not a thing. I'm like, what? So it's, it's as if, you know, you have all the access to this stuff, but like a lot of the, you know, the intrinsic power and mystery of music has maybe been somewhat mitigated. But having said that, when young kids or whoever actually see a band playing that maybe they've didn't plan on seeing it, they react viscerally to it. So the power is still there, but it's like in, in the larger scape with media, it's kind of relegated it to not the same amount of importance. You know what I mean? Yeah, to, to a degree, I think you're right. It It's, um, you know, we're, we're, we're of the same era. So like when, when we were young, um, there were vinyl records. Yep. There were concerts, which were like treasure. If you got to go to those, um, there was film and, you know, and then there was MTV and, you know, and now, you know, it's not four or five, uh, you know, platforms or components. There's, there's 40,000, um, and, and gaming is huge. And, you know, the meta, the metaverse and virtual reality and like, you know, all this futuristic shit that we're right in the middle of. Um, I, I think the benefit of that is that as much noise is going on out there the people that are looking for an organic experience are the ones that are like you know picking up a jason isbell record and an acoustic guitar and going i want to learn how to do this you know i think you have these pioneers like songwriters like isbell guitar players like um our buddy billy strings who's you know just taking over the world um you know i think that uh, marcus king i mean these these are these are our next big ones that will get, you know, everything over the hump. I mean, we're all creating a, a, a bridge here. Um, I have a fun tablature story for you. Cause I know that, that you'll appreciate the tab, <laughs> the, the, the tab, the tab story. So, um, and, and, and I think maybe your listeners might, um, appreciate this too, because a lot of people think I grew up backstage at the Allman brothers and I was handed a guitar and, this is how you do it and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, I met my dad when I was 16, but I started playing guitar at 13. So I started playing before I was ever in that circus. And the reason I started was because I went to this kid's house after school. We used to hang out here and there. Um, his name was Jason. We're like up in his room. We're playing a heavy metal record. And I look in the corner and there's a piece of shit Gibson Explorer copy. And I go, hey, you didn't tell me you played guitar. And he's like trying to act all cool. Oh, yeah, man, I play guitar. I'm like, well, you play me something. I want to hear you play. So he picks it up. And Greg, it was the first time that I ever saw someone play guitar from three feet away. Aha. And I was like, oh, my God, this butthole can do it. Like, I can do this shit. Right. <laughs> you know, it was just kind of that aha moment. And I went home and I told my mom, I was like, hey, I want a guitar. And she had been trying to get me to play for years because she was like, you, you know, you probably have this inside of you. You should, you know. And and I always kind of shunned her because I just wanted to listen to music. I didn't want to make it, you know. But when I saw that dude play horribly, I was like, oh, man, I got to give this a crack. <laughs> so... So she said, okay, I'll buy you a, 
or here, she goes, here, take this guitar. Cause she played like a little bit. She goes, you take this guitar. And if you get good on it, I'll buy you an electric. Cause I know you probably want an electric. And I'm like, all right, deal. So she hands me this guitar. We bought it in Mexico across the border. Um, when I was living in South Texas for $10 cat gut strings, the whole thing, baseball bat neck. I mean, dude, <laughs> this, this thing was impossible. I still have it. And um, she took me up to the music store every Tuesday, right? And I'm going in, and it's it's row, row, row your boat. Ding, 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 ding. ding. And I'm like, man, fuck this. And But I got, I got to do it because that's, that's like her condition is you got to take these lessons. You got to do this. You got to take these lessons. So you're going to love this, man. So I get there early one time because she had something to do. So I, I arrived about 30 minutes later or early, 30 minutes early, and I go into the magazines, and boom, 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 I discover tablature. Yes. And I'm like, whoa, wait, 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 wait. This is the string. This is the number of the fret. Beep, 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 boop, beep, boop, beep, boop, boop. Oh, I just learned Stairway to Heaven. Right. I just learned. And I'm like, this is way cooler and way faster than, you know, this teacher. And I'm like, okay. So... Every time she drops me off for these lessons, I ditch the lesson. <laughs> I use the money for the tablature magazine. And mom don't know it. You're going to love this. This gets so much better. This is a ra- <laughs> this is this is a rabbit hole. I Grab like your it. coffee. Grab your coffee, folks. It only gets better. So, I don't know. It's about a month later. It's a Sunday afternoon. Mom goes, hey, come on in here in the living room and show me what you learn on guitar. Oh, not a problem. I bust out Stairway to Heaven. Her jaw drops. I play Dream On by Aerosmith. She's like, what? That teacher of yours is incredible. <laughs> and I go, and, I, and I'm like, ah, shit. Like, I can't lie to Ma. I go, Ma, I haven't been going. She goes, what, what are you talking? How did, how did you learn these songs? And I'm, and I went to my room and I grabbed one of the magazines. I go, oh, I've been buying these and sitting in the back of the store, ditching out on the lesson. <laughs> and she, and she goes, she goes, okay. Um, hmm, you know, guitar player magazine. Okay. Do you just want a subscription to this? And I go, yeah. I do. <laughs> So she gets me the subscription, and 20 years later to the month, they did an article on me in that magazine. That's awesome. To the month, 20 Ah. years. (laughs) And 10 years later, almost to the month, but not quite. So 30 years after I had snuck to the back with this magazine, I became a columnist for that magazine. <laughs> Is that some full circle shit? It's awesome. It's unbelievable. Like when I really think about it, like I was just a normal, sub, you know, suburban kid, like trying to learn ACDC, like, like everybody else. And, and, you know, she was really sweet, man. You know, my mom was like so instrumental in, in, in pushing my obsession along you know, no, no uh, neighborhood parents would let their kids go see Iron Maiden. And my mom was like, you be there at that lamppost at 1115 
you know, and I know this is important to you. Enjoy the show. You know, don't be late or you won't go to the next show, <laughs> you know? Um, and I would go alone, man. And I saw Judas Priest and I saw Accept and I saw uh, Iron Maiden and I saw Triumph and I saw, like, I saw all these bands, like, and it was just an awesome uh, experience, you know, with, with her being very accepting, except she wouldn't let me see Ozzy. Ah, interesting. Wouldn't let me see Ozzy. I said, Ma, I want to go to the show. She goes, Oh, which one? Oh, no, no, you're not going. You're not going to that one. I go, Ma, you let me go to every, every show. Like I, I really actually just want to see the opening act. She's like, well, who's the opening act? I go, it's this band called Metallica and they're really heavy. So it was a master of puppets tour. And she goes, no, 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 no. You're not going to see Ozzy. I go, Ma, I don't need to see Ozzy. I'll go and watch Metallica and leave. She goes, no, that's not how it works. Ozzy will make all the money, and you're not giving him any of your money. <laughs> so mom, mom knows what's up, you know. And I go, Ma, like, why? Why won't you let me go see this concert? And she, and you got to remember, my mom's born and raised in San Antonio, Texas. Okay. And she says, he peed on the Alamo. <laughs> she goes you're not you're, you're not going to see ozzy he peed on the alamo you are not going to see him like she was so offended you know back when he pissed on the alamo <laughs> anyway there's just That's some funny shit there's yeah there's some gold nuggets in there from my my youth youth my pre hanging out with the allman brothers you know and then those stories i mean that's a whole other can of worms but Really supportive mom, really kind of a weird way into finding the guitar and being obsessed with it. And, you know, and here it is all these years later and I'm, you know, I'm playing dad's guitars and I'm playing some of, some of dad's songs and just trying to, you know, give back. You know, it's, it's really neat to see grown ass men, you know, weeping tears when like Dwayne Betts and I bust into dreams or, or blue right. sky, or, you right. know. Well, I'll tell you what, it's a, uh, it's a, it's a very powerful legacy for sure. And you guys are doing yeah. it proud, doggone it. Well, thanks, man. It's, you know, it's, um, we had a lot of fun with, with our band, with the Almond Betts band. And, um, that was really fun to, to kind of be able to spin both plates, you know, to be able to write together and, and have our own true chemistry and, you know, hit the stage and, you know, play a handful of numbers pardon me off of uh off our records and then and then throw like midnight rider in there or throw whatever it was it was fun to 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 do both you know and um and Dwayne's such a great player too man like just awesome like you know i mean he played alongside his dad for years but you know he really has his own thing where he, he he's really kind of incorporated this this uh almost jerry like ethereal sweet sensual you know like grateful deady heady thing you know and he's and he's he's it's ever evolving and he just he takes things out into the the the, the stratosphere and, and then brings them back and um you know he's really become a force to, to be reckoned with you know what a great guitarist and and singer too excellent you know it's it's got to be you know, it's got to be somewhat daunting to be the son of, you know, in both your cases. But to, in order to do your own thing and embrace the legacy is an awesome thing. 
And yeah. uh, it's just really cool to see. You know, it's, 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 I think it's balance. Thing. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Because if we, if we did all dad stuff, it would be like, come on, like, what the fuck? What do you, what do you got? You know, but if, but if you did none of it, it'd be like, hey, come on, like, pay some tribute, like, pay some respect. So exactly. You, you really have to kind of, like I said, spin both plates and, and, and come from the right place on both. Well, it's an interesting thing from a kind of a, a history perspective, you know, the bros had their had their run, obviously, the initial incarnation, and then later on in the seventies, you know, with Danny Tolder and to the early eighties. And then, you know, I graduated high school in nineteen eighty-four, but I was the youngest of seven kids. So I was I had all the records from my my older brother, who was 14 years older than I was, because I had to room with them because there were five girls in between. So I had all of the records. So I was you know, all the guys that were my age were going, were either, you know, into metal or they were into punk or the, you know, no one was into the kind of music I was into. I was into, you know, Zeppelin, Hendrix, Allman Brothers, um, you know, cream era stuff. And then I totally read up on who they were into. So I was, you know, I saw Muddy Waters and I was 14. I was just into it at a very young age. Uh, and I remember at Milwaukee Summerfest, you know, uh, 1981, the Allman Brothers played. And, um, and I went to go see him with a bunch of my, my cohorts, cohorts. And I remember the, uh, the Nighthawks opened up for him with Jimmy Thackeray and he blew my mind. And then the Bowen brothers came out and I was absolutely obsessed. I remember I went home and I went into my, my sister, for whatever reason, had all the Almond brothers records and my brother only had, only had the first record. Um, so I went and I found him on, I just became obsessed with it. And I was, and I learned everything off of live at the film or I just would listen to it nonstop and so on and so forth. But what was so interested, no one, my age knew who the Almond brothers were at all. And I was like, how could you not know who this band is? You know, I think I was the only person in my, in my high school, uh, who, who knew that Greg Allman wasn't just the guy that was married to share, but was actually like the best blues singer of his generation you know what I mean? so so then it, you know it got to be in the later uh 80s and uh you know greg Owen made a little bit of, of course the comeback with the i'm no angel and then you know just before the bullets fly and the dicky Bates, dicky betts came out with planet pattern disruptive you're like oh my god maybe they'll do it again but even you know but people were so into the dead and like the dead would fill stadiums non-stop and, and all this kind of stuff and i was like and i never was into the dead because they their records weren't in our house, you know what I mean. And I just I just wasn't exposed to it. And then when I would listen to them, I was like, I, and I always liked Jerry's playing. I liked that funky tone of his and his little chromatic, you know, bluegrassy runs that he would do. But the but the band itself, I'm like, where are the grooves and what is this meandering shit? I just and I wanted to like it so bad, but I was like, like the fucking Almond Brothers. That's a band. There's grooves, there's tunes, there's melodies, and the improvisation is killer. And Greg Owen was the best singer of all time. And so I was like, when are these, when are these jam people going to find out that this band is the shit? And then suddenly it started to happen. Did you, did you sense that, that thing as well, that for a while there was like, yeah, no, that's a good point. There was a turning point, wasn't there? Yeah. Yeah, no. It's like once once Warren got in the band and they started, you know, the Shades of Two Worlds, and once it's like that happened, it seemed like all of a sudden the dead crowd started to go, "What do we got here?" (laughs) Yeah, yeah. No, I think that's a good point. I I think that both bands were were onto something in the seventies where 
um, where they were sharing an audience for sure. Yeah, no doubt. Absolutely. You know, when, when Dwayne was alive and there was even some cross pollinating jams and, you know, they think they both, you know, did the, the Watkins Glen thing, which was a Guinness book of world records, like largest concert audience ever. Um, but yeah, I think there was a, a, a moment, you know, I was thinking about this the other day too. So it's funny you bring it up. Somehow the dead kind of stayed alive through eighties pop and even managed to, to squeak out a hit with, uh, with touch of gray, touch of gray. Right. Yeah. And continue to kind of fill those big places. And the Allman brothers kind of just disappeared. Um, the only pop eighties thing that came on the radar, as we discussed before was I'm no angel. So, and then all of a sudden in the nineties, it was like, Oh, you know, they're, they've got this Renaissance going jam bands in particular, you know, you had the birth and growth of widespread panic and fish and like all of these, you know, the next generation of like jam bands. Um, and then the dead just continued that trajectory. Um, and then the Allman brothers did as well. Uh, you know, it was funny, you know, my dad didn't care for the grateful dead and he was pretty vocal about it. He, even in his book, he was like, didn't, you know, said he didn't like them. And I think it's because, you know, overall that, that he, he viewed them more as a, more of an angular band, uh, instead of a circular band. And, and I think anybody that knows, you know, when something swings, um, and has that elasticity, um, that they were coming from more of kind of a folk and kind of a, you know, kind of, kind of, kind of pushing it instead of riding on the, on the back. Um, yeah. And, and I think that's what he meant. You know, I don't think it was anything personal or like, you know, he knew that they were extremely talented cats. And I mean, Jerry, Jesus, man, Jerry, you know, I, I got a phone call. Um, I was, it was 92 or I, maybe I 94. I don't know. It was, it was actually right. It was right before Jerry passed away. I had a friend that wrote concert reviews for the big St. Louis newspaper and he would call me and just always kind of give me the, Hey man, I got to go, uh, <clears throat> review the living color concert. I got to go, you know, review the blind melon concert. I got to go review the Whitney Houston. I mean, it was all genres, you know, and he hit me one day and he goes, Hey, I'm, I, I got to go review the grateful dead. And I was like, yeah, have fun. Um, because it wasn't my thing, you know, I, I didn't get it and I wasn't initiated and, you know, I liked a couple of the tunes. Right. And I passed and I hung up the phone and something just like, I called him right back and I said, you know what? I want to go. And he goes, yeah. And I go, yeah, I want to go. I, I want to know why this is so big. Right. I want to know why. And so I really just really went for like research, you know, and, and again, I'm uninitiated. I don't know what kind of guitar player Jerry is. I don't know what kind of real genre they are. I just know they're like filthy hippies, you know? And I call a buddy and I get uh and I go, Hey man, you got some mushrooms? <laughs> and he goes, he goes, yeah, man. So I got mushrooms and I took them and we had 10th row center right in front of Jerry and they kicked in right as they hit the stage. And I just like, my eyes were like, Whoa. And I turned, I turned to my dude and I was like, I get it. I get it now. <laughs> it, all, 
it all makes sense, man. It all makes sense. And, and to this day, like, I love the dead now. I really love the dead. Um, I had to, I had to make a personal connection with them, but you know, it's, it's funny. The nineties were a real movement. You know, there was all the grunge going on, but there was this undercurrent of hippie jam bands and, and there was a lot of careers birthed during that time, you know, Cheryl Crow on the, on, on the Horde tour. Like, you know, we were out on that tour and, and she didn't have a hit yet. And all of a sudden she exploded and, Blues Traveler exploded and Big Head Todd and like, you know, all these sweet people um, that were just so talented. It was a neat I love time. That, to- I love that Big Head Todd record. The first one, I wore the shit out of that thing. Yeah, you know, you know, Todd joined us on the Allman Family Revival, I think, two years back. And we we got to, you know, me and him got to do Circle together. And like, he's the sweetest cat and just plays his ass off and... You know that was a that was a really fun era of of music, man. In the in the '90s, with that with the Horde tour and the, you know, um, it it you know Dave Matthews was like born out of that, that. You know, there was there was a lot of stuff that kind of came to life out of that movement. Um, and the Allman Brothers, you know, were really placed. In, into their renaissance at the perfect time because everything was just kind of bubbling and, 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 and welling up to, you know, to really give them that platform and, and give them that renaissance and the, the beacon runs, the historic beacon runs and um, all of that were to follow. And it was really, really great to see dad experience a second wave of success with a whole, you know, new decade, new generation. And it was really great more than anything to hear him and Dickie and Warren like really write some classics like end of the line and seven turns and just soul shine. And I mean, that era of the band is it's fantastic. It's an, it's an awesome era. Absolutely. Yeah. I guess I meant what, you know, the, the younger generation of dead fans didn't, you know, cause early on, obviously there was a lot of symbiosis with the, with the bands, but yeah, that, you know, when you, when people our age that were deadheads were, weren't really into the Almond Brothers, I was like, how is this possible? Like if they would only hear the Almond Brothers, they would get it. And, and to your point, like when the nineties happened, finally that transition seemed to happen where the younger jam band people were like, Oh, here we go. Well, there was, there was also this contingency with the dead things and, and not that this is a bad thing, but I always got the vibe that a quarter to a third of the people at those shows were just there for the happening. Oh, absolutely. No doubt. You know, like they were there to just be amongst like fellow, you know, hippies and like, you know, tune in and drop out, you know, kind of mentality, which is beautiful by the way. So I'm not, I'm not dissing it, but I felt like the, that half the people there were like just frying on the actual music and the other people were just, just there for the, just for the spectacle of it, you know? <laughs> it's funny, the story you're telling about going to see the dead. I, I had kind of a similar experience with um, uh, with uh, Deep Purple. You know, I always had, you know, I had Machine Gun when I was a kid, you know, like everyone yeah. had. But, uh, but, I just you know, I, opened for them. Oh, I fucking love Deep Purple. So what happened was they were playing at, um, so that, that record came out in like 83, uh, Perfect Strangers. And I love that record. Uh, but I was kind of a kind of a blues goon at that point in time, you know, a little bit. Oh, yeah. Well, I like it, but, you know, I only get so close to it. And this buddy of mine's like, hey, I've got tickets to see uh, 
uh, Deep Purple down in Alpine Valley. You want to go? I'm like, yeah, I got nothing better to do. Right. So I remember I go down there and I'm, and I'm sitting down there, kind of, you know, checking my watch and shit, you know, or having a few beers. Also, the lights go down and then the organ comes in. You know, oh, yeah. And it's like fucking deafening. Right. And after he gets done doing the thing and just like the, the fucking B3 is wigging out, you know, distorting and making all this record, there's this, this little laser in the back of the stage and it's getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And you hear the band going, it's getting louder and louder. And all of a sudden, the DP is like huge and the thing and the lights open up and they break, they go into Highway Star. And, but it's like, what the fuck is going on? By the end of the show, my shirt's off, you know, and I'm screaming and <laughs> howling. Dude, and from then just, on in is i mean like god what what month are we in november i think it was just july or august we opened for him in, in bonn germany it was just devon allen project with you know opening for deep purple soul support and it was like it was awesome man. oh like, i'm I, sure it was awesome i was like oh my god i mean when we were in high school i mean you if you were at a party and there was a guitar you played smoke on the water well no doubt no doubt about it I'm currently reading, because uh, I love reading rock and roll autobiographies and biographies. Man, I'm reading, dude, I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm addicted to them. No, I don't even have to be a fan of the music. I just want to hear their story. I'm reading Ian Gillen's. It's worth. Wow. It's worthwhile. It's, wow. It's, it's a good one. So you'll have to tell me some of your favorites. Uh, Herbie Hancock's is mind-blowing. Oh, I got to read that one. It's You have to. It's... It's probably my favorite one, and and shockingly, my second favorite might just be the the Duff McKagan. Oh no, kidding! Yeah, it's insane because that guy was like, like almost clinically dead, and like his story of kind of coming out of that cloud of insane fame and 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 fortune and and everything else um, into you know cleaning up and like. I forget if it's jujitsu or whatever he got into. He got into like all this. He's like, now he even, I think he has some kind of firm that, that, that handles investments for like, like musicians that, that make it and like, don't really know how to invest wealth. And like, you know, like it's, an, his story's insane. Cause he was just a punk rocker. Right. And now well, he's just, the, you know, one that I really like that. And you know, yeah, yeah, he's doing, yeah, he, he cleaned up, he cleaned up good. Um, Another one that I really liked that I didn't, well, I was always kind of, I was always a police fan, but not like a rabid police fan. But I did a thing at a NAMM show one time where I had to work up a couple tunes. It was a Fender thing with Andy Summers and his book was coming out at the time. So I got the book and I read it. That book is awesome because he's like the Forrest Gump of rock. It's like, you know, when Hendrix got off the plane in London, the first jam he did right off the plane, Chas Chandler took him to sit in with his band Zoot Money Andy Summers is a guitar player, right? Uh, Cream's recording Fresh Cream and Clapton's Les Paul gets stolen. The only other person that they knew around town that had a Les Paul the same year and type was Andy Summers. Andy Summers brings the Les Paul, sells it to Clapton to use it. It was just like one of these things after another. And, th and then he ends up in the police. And it, it's a it's a fascinating tale. That's a good well, one. Well, they just did a um they just did a doc on him. Yeah. Yeah, and that and I, I I've watched pieces of it, and it's pretty pretty cool. Um, it was funny when when COVID hit, we we turned my downstairs of, of this house into a studio, 
and and recorded a, a really cool you're gonna like this i'll send it to you when it's it's almost done uh being mixed um instrumental record called night vision and it's meditative and really trippy and uh i mean it's got african horns it's got like like japanese spoken word it's got crazy synth beds and 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 all kinds of fun guitar stuff of course but um the the rhythm guitars on it i wanted the andy summers thing oh yeah I, yeah, yeah. <laughs> all i wanted i wanted that that bell like voluptuous uh so i got a 75 electra mistress original i got a 77 jazz chorus that was in pristine shape and i put my sir strat through the electric mistress into the i uh, dude it was exactly yes it was exactly it was it was walking on the moon like it was it was unbelievable um so i had a little andy summers like tone tone moment yes atonement um and i love him and i love the police i i think uh i've never read that book but i would certainly read it um I'm trying to think. There was another one I had recently read that was pretty. I mean, dude, the Keith Richards ones on. Oh, it's fantastic. What that, I like uh, about what the the thing that's so great about Keith's book uh, was that you got you know it's like when he discovered playing an open G. It's like you know he discusses that. I knew when I did this and I would write, and there was all these aha moments where he would talk about it. Whereas like when you read like Clapton's book, he didn't say, yeah, you know, when I plugged that Les Paul into the Marshall the first time I knew, you know, there was none of that. You know what I mean? And uh, yeah, it's the, the Keith Richards one is pretty fantastic. Dude. I went, I went uh, to see the stones, um, you know, Carl Denson, their sax player is a, is a friend and, and he's done the Alma family revival before. And, he played on another record of mine and he's, he's such a sweetheart. Um, but he hooked it up for us in Paris, uh, just a few months ago and we went and man, the lights went down and that first chord of that telecaster for street fighting, man, it's glorious. It, it, I, I mean, literally the, you know, and I, the, I know this sounds like guitar geek talk, but if you're tuning in, you're one too. Right. Exactly. Uh, <laughs> Uh, that first fucking chord, I got all the fuel bumps. I got all the hairs raised up and it, it was, it was worth the, 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 everything, the standing in line, the, the, you know, I mean, and, it's and for they, reals. Were, they, they were just, just fantastic. Yeah. Keith, Keith brings it every time that tone of those old tweed twins. Oh Lord. It's just so delightful. Yeah, it's that's really a yeah, that's really a whole thing. I actually I have a muddy waters telly where I clipped the E string and tuned it Keith style, and sometimes I just have to sit down and play shit like start me up and stuff just just for fun because it's glorious. You know, I have to say, <laughs> speak, speaking of books, I, I have to say Galadriel's book is one of my favorites. I think that's really a good, a well done book. Yeah, I was just texting her last night, telling her how great Joe Walsh was. Um, that's a great book, and and the care and love she showed, and the due diligence, and 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 the uh, the the box set even even more so to me. That box set was just you know quite amazing. So yeah, she's a 
she definitely is is you know very astute uh person man she it was interesting when she really was right she was down at johnny sandlin's place doing some uh recon for the book when we were recording down there and yeah. it was it was just so weird she's because she's sitting there in the studio as we're as we're tracking and I was like, no, no big deal. Just, you know, Dwayne's daughter sitting there hanging out as we're trying to record some shit. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, no biggie. Yeah. One of my favorite know. Johnny Sandlin stories was we <laughs> did you did you know Johnny at all? A uh, little bit, a little bit. Not 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 super close. He, he was funny as shit. We were recording um one of my tunes, which was kind of this maniacal delay thing where it was it was kind of hard rocking and he wasn't do engineering that particular day he was in the main house and um jeremy stevens which was his second he was engineering this tune and we were working on this tune we decided to break for lunch we go out and get some food and when we come back johnny had written me a note and it said hey greg satan called he said good job (laughs) (laughs) i love it it's like all right man (laughs) that's pretty great he was that's pretty great he was humorous oh man well listen thanks so much for taking some time to rap with me today it's been a lot of fun we could go on forever we'll have time in yeah, December. no, we'll, we'll, we'll do it again sometime. We'll, we'll have to do a part two. Maybe we do a uh, part two on the tour. I'm I looking, like it. Uh, looking forward to trading licks with you and sharing coffees with you. And, uh, and Likewise. It's going to be a blast. Well, thanks so much. Look forward to seeing you. Thanks again for having me on. And uh, I look forward to the jams. It's going to be a freaking blast. Can't wait, man. Can't wait. Be safe out there. And thanks for tuning in, y'all. See you. Take it easy. Bye-bye. Thanks so much for tuning in, ladies and gentlemen. We absolutely appreciate you caring and checking out these podcasts. We certainly have a good time doing them. Again, it's brought to you by our friends at Wildwood Guitars in Louisville, Colorado. Don't be afraid to go to wildwoodguitars.com. Check out what they have going on. I actually go there every night and visit their new arrivals page. It's kind of a kind of an illness, really. And of course, our friends at Fishman Transducers, fishman.com, making all the greatest accoutrements for your stringed instruments. Stay tuned for more. Greg Cock here. Thanks so much for tuning in.